whoever you are, wherever you are, and whenever it is, you are catching some brainwaves coming to you from the banks of the sweeping and tumbling St. Brain River in almost always sunny Longmont, Colorado. I'm Becky Peters, and across the table is the co-host who makes Don Draper seem like a used car salesman. He's Ben Cobb. Ben, what's good? It is all good, Becky. Feeling crazy lucky to be bringing giants in education to my favorite people, That's you listeners, you busy teachers, all to help us be more informed, inspired, and connected educators. And we have a true giant on the show today, Becky. Just how tall is our giant today? Well, I mean, metaphorically, she is a towering colossus. She's an educator, an author, a cognitive scientist, and a former advertiser. Her name is Dr. Lindsay Portnoy, and she had a super interesting path to education. She was a marketer and advertiser, and she shares with us some lessons from the advertising world that can apply to education. So before we dive into our interview with her, we reached out to some of our friends who are in communications, marketing, advertising, and asked them what are some of the biggest lessons that we can apply to our work as teachers and school leaders. Yeah, Radical candor confession time here. Uh, I'm going to treat this like my therapist's couch. Do it. I think deep down, I've always wanted to be Don Draper, just like a super suave salesman who could sell ice to an Eskimo. (laughs) So I love this opportunity just to learn from a profession that I've admired so much. And sometimes we try to compare teaching to other professions and it's kind of a stretch. Like I probably shouldn't say this, but it's a safe place on this couch. Um, (laughs) We interviewed uh, Pirate Dave back in episode five. And honestly, I don't think a pirate would be the best teacher, but teaching and advertising go really, really closely together. And if there was a book called Teach Like an Advertiser, I'd say we all should buy it because at its core, advertisers and teachers have the exact same goal. And that is to alter human behavior and beliefs. Uh, There are so many amazing parallels between our work and marketing work. I think back to being a U.S. history teacher, there are dozens of historical examples of how marketing campaigns changed behaviors of entire countries. Thinking of like Rosie the Riveter or Uncle Sam. One of the marketing campaigns that I've really been hooked into reading about and listening to podcasts about come to us from across the pond in Great Britain and an advertising campaign called This Girl Can. Had you heard of it before, Becky? No, I I hadn't heard of it until you put it in my face and I watched it this morning and I am ready to go. Tell us about it. You're ready to rock. Absolutely. So um, jumping back just a couple years to 2014 and there was a survey of Brits and they found that um, 2 million less women in Great Britain were active and participated in sports and working out than men. And that's a pretty giant number when you consider the total size of um, Great Britain. And on top of that, they found that it women had the desire to work out and be active and that 75% of women ages 14 to 44 said they wanted to be more active, but they weren't. So they had this desire, but they weren't doing it. So a company called Sport England sought to change that behavior. So how could they get 2 million women who wanted to be active to be active? And so they did root cause analysis and found that the biggest hurdle for this women as they wanted to be more active was a deep fear of being judged. So they created this crazy powerful 90 second video. We'll let the music breathe in the background as we're talking about it here. Uh, And it showed everyday women from different age groups, different body types, different ability levels, running, sweating, playing basketball, doing a row machine, listening to music, dancing, boxing. It showed the sweat, the struggle, the not looking perfect. And at one point over top of one of the clips, uh, the title appears, I Jiggle, Therefore I Am. 
And this advertisement after 90 seconds ends with the tagline, this girl can. We're going to link that video in show notes, but this advertisement wasn't just like a one-time motivation thing that got you hyped and you forgot about it. This campaign actually changed human behavior. Over 1.6 million women who were not active began working out because of it, and 2.8 million women nationwide reported that they increased their activity level because of the campaign. Like, how cool is that? It's amazing. Uh, Advertisements motivated women to literally run until they would be out of breath. So can't we be changing behavior in easier ways as teachers? I love that video so much. I mean, Missy Elliott can always get you going, um, but we've linked the video in show notes and I just want to tell listeners to be careful where they watch it because it will just make you want to start sprinting. Um, And even if we just dissected that one commercial, there are tons of valuable insights into current research. And I think that one of the big ones, like you talked about, Ben, is like that authenticity is way more important than perfection uh, in getting people to change their beliefs and behaviors. So like the old school belief in advertising was that like your product had to be perfect or the perfect solution. And I even think sometimes we do that to ourselves in classrooms by like, you know, whatever we put up in the hallway has to be the perfect product. Um, but, and on the surface that makes sense, like who wants to buy something that's broken or who's going to be inspired by something that looks less than perfect. But what researchers have found is that authenticity is way more compelling than Photoshop. So back in the United States, uh, if you look at the Dove Real Beauty campaign, which might be swimming in some of your heads as we talk about this, it was one of the most viewed viral campaigns of all time, and it involved showing people how Dove was not going to use Photoshop and tons of makeup, but by portraying women as real as they were with like wrinkles and gray hair and whatever it is, but advertising, um, aligning it to this tagline, beauty should be a source of confidence and not anxiety. And one of my favorite commercials in that campaign was um, women had to sit across from a sketch artist and tell them what they looked like. And the sketch artist, you know, like at a police station, like a forensic sketch artist might sketch out a person, you know, so they would say like, oh, my chin's a little bit too big and blah, blah, blah. Um, But then they introduce themselves to another woman in the lobby while they're waiting. And then that other woman describes um, the woman that they met. I hope I'm describing this right. Uh, Describes the woman that they met. And the sketch artist shows the two pictures side by side. And the one that self-reported is just so much more detrimental than the one that the stranger tells about the person. And it's just incredible because we all know we do that to ourselves, that we're way too self-critical. But the commercials that show us as we are, it doesn't just help the sales of Kleenex, it also helps Dove. I would definitely recommend you look those up. Um, If not only for you, then especially too with the women and men in your life or the other kids in your class, because it just shows how important it is to be ourselves and how beautiful that can be. And because those campaigns are authentic instead of perfect. Dove sales actually nearly doubled from 2.4, 2.5, sorry, to $4 billion. So it's effective. And as teachers, how can we show authenticity over perfection? How can we display our vulnerability in a way that brings students onto our team? I, it makes me think of another resource, um, Zaretta Hammond's book, Culturally Responsive Teaching in the Brain, which I know we've talked about before, but she mentions selective vulnerability as one of the trust makers, as like one of five trust generators that she credits with deepening classroom learning partnerships. So I think with that, um, maybe we can be more real with our students by like saying how a learning a topic has been hard, or maybe how you had a hard time making friends when you were in middle school. But when we're real with people, it helps us make connections and connections are the foundation of good teaching. 
Yeah, one of my my cooperating teacher when I was student teaching, his biggest advice for me was teach who you are or teach what you know, teach who you are. And like students have that nose for authenticity. Like they always knew when I was faking it, when I was being myself and they respond when I'm myself. And I think as human beings, we have that like ability to see when someone's being real and when they aren't. Um, and I, th- I think that actually brings us to another marketing advertising lesson that we've learned from our friends in the industry. Uh, and that is that like people are attracted to our authentic self and that a raving fanatic is always more compelling than a best commercial or billboard. Uh, the most effective advertising comes from word of mouth. Companies are putting in tons of time and effort and money into creating those loyal fanatic bases because they know it's way more effective when you hear it from someone you trust than when you see a billboard or a 30-second commercial. Uh, when I lived in Illinois and got super into running, um, I would eat Cliff Bars. And so I was on like the Cliff Bar website, and it, it had a little link for, hey, do you want to become a Cliff Bar ambassador? And they just sent me tons of free stuff, not because I was super fast or super good looking, but they knew when they would send me free stuff that I would give it to my family and friends and that I would become one of their biggest spokespersons. And so I did that. And despite huge amount of money going towards podcast advertisements, most folks discover new podcasts by word of mouth. When you hear from a family or friend that they like a show, you'll check it out too. And that's why we end every episode just begging you to share our our episodes with other people, because when you tell someone that you like it, they'll tune in too. Uh, (laughs) Apple, Google, Microsoft, all have created these groups of fanatics like Google Certified Innovators, Apple Distinguished Educators. And let's think as teachers, how can we develop those like loyal, fanatical fan bases in our classroom? Uh, Dr. Chris Emden has written a couple books and he has an awesome TED talk that we can link. Uh, But one of the things he talks about is creating those little communities of fanatics in your classes. And he calls them cogens, like co-generated. And they're just little groups of students of maybe four or five kids that you have over six week periods and you have them in your room to eat lunch with you or you go out and shoot hoops with them or you watch YouTube videos and on your prep period with them. And the goal there is that you develop those super solid relationships with four or five kids. And that is going to increase your credibility in that class because then they're like, oh, you know, Miss Peters is actually a pretty cool person and I'm going to behave in her class. Um, I can't tell you the number of times that I've been in conversations with teachers and they're talking about a tough student and saying, hey, you know, so-and-so really acts up in my class. And someone always responds, well, hey, you should talk to Mr. Steele because he's in wrestling and he'll get through to him. And it's not like it's wrestling that's helped Mr. Steele get through to kids. It's the relationship that he has with that kid outside of class. And so think of your toughest kid get them on your team, do like a cogent thing where you have them in your classroom, uh, to develop like raving fan bases. I, that's an awesome connection, man. I, I forgot about that example, but after I read that book, um, the, uh, for white folks to teach in the hood and for, uh, the rest of you all too, um, when he talks about cogents in there, it seems like such a powerful practice. Like, uh, you bring, I'm going to see if I can find an article to attack or to tech and show notes here too, but you bring students into it and then they invite other students into it and you keep it small. Um, but then they can give you like real time feedback in your class. Like, Oh, this isn't really hitting, you know, Mr. Cobb, like let's, let's think of a different way to approach this. Um, so you can really use them as sort of like, um, little focus groups in your class too. Such a cool idea. So I think those cogens or those ambassador programs, 
programs tie into the foundational element of great advertising, which is know your audience. It seems like the you know location, location of real estate, know your audience. So empathy is king. And I, I know we've kind of, it seem, may seem like beating a dead horse because we talk about empathy a lot, but when you know your audience, you can identify the root cause of behavior and then solve for that. So like think back to the This Girl Can campaign that Ben brought up earlier. If the advertiser thought, hey, we want to get women to work out more, let's show a bunch of models working out in their underwear, we all know how well that works. You start to feel judged immediately and that would probably have had the opposite effect. So we know that when you work out, you look better, but that kind of advertisement wouldn't have hit at the root cause, which is that we don't like to feel judged. So when you know your audience, when you take the time to observe and really have patience with it and figure out what the root cause is, you start to see the why behind the why, and then you can address that. And that's what's so great about design thinking, which we'll talk all about with Dr. Poitnoy, um, but it all starts with empathy. Yeah, I had a really cool opportunity to work with one of my favorite teachers, and she was like, um, she kind of had identified the problem in her classroom of student apathy, and I tried to like Don Draper it, and I came in with all of these awesome ideas, and I couldn't wait. I'm like, let's have a motivational speaker, let's have an assembly, let's do all this rah-rah to get them pumped up and excited about learning. And luckily she knows her kids. She's done that deep empathy to figure out the why behind the why. And I totally misidentified the root cause of their apathy because I didn't know her kids like she did. Their apathy wasn't because they didn't have engaging lessons or that they were bored in school. Their apathy came because they lacked confidence. They were apathetic because they didn't believe in their own potential. So when we don't know our audience, we create solutions that don't really solve the right problem. Rah-rahing apathetic students doesn't work if their apathy comes because they're not confident. Instead, we need to design a system that gives them wins because success precedes confidence. And that's exactly what this teacher and her team are working on. They're doing badges and systems to give kids easy wins so that they'll reinvest in the learning. So that's why starting with apathy is so important. That's awesome, man. Um, So let's, I, I think kind of the takeaway from this is let's try to teach like advertisers. And if you guys have tips for that, we would love to hear them. But to help us think through these lessons even more for how we can all teach more like advertisers and how design can help us solve our toughest problems, we have Dr. Lindsay Portnoy. And without further ado, here she is. Could you tell us how uh, an advertisement on a subway changed your life's trajectory? Oh, wow. (laughs) You're going to make me cry. My undergraduate education is in communications and business, which is um, sort of funny if you think about it, because I started working in advertising and I worked in media. And I was super interested uh, when we were doing campaigns and trying to figure out where messages should or should not go, understanding what they call the psychographics of our user. And what's interesting is that I you know, was always very curious about how people think and why they think and why they behave in the way that they do. And I didn't realize that there was actually a degree in that, which is ultimately cognitive science. I'm sure there are other degrees. Um, but anyway, through a roundabout way, I was in the I lived in New York City during September 11th, and um, but after September 11th, and and just life was just different. And there was an ad, and it said, um, well, I guess to back up in in media, when you're in media and an advertising agency, you use a lot of spreadsheets to sort of figure out uh, where the budgets are, and you know what what um, websites you're going to advertise on or what print media you're going to advertise in. Anyhow, so there was an ad that says, will your spreadsheets remember you in 10 years or 20 years or something? And I lost it. 
And I was like, no, no, they absolutely will not. <laughs> and um, it was an advertisement for the New York City Teaching Fellows. And so the minute I got back to a computer, I applied. Um, I didn't even think about it. I just was like, this is this is a sign. This is what I'm doing. And I did. And I'm so grateful that they interviewed me. And I'm even more grateful that they invited me to join them. Um, and in fact, it was my relationship with the folks uh, in that master's program through the teaching fellows that encouraged me and supported me and, and you know, helped even push me forward in this journey. So there you go. Power, power of a message. So a, a bit, kind of a big question, I think, but like, what are the top points? What do you think educators can learn from marketing and, and psychographics, like you called it? Business and advertising and marketing and PR. It's all about understanding your audience or your consumer. And as teachers, we are the ultimate design thinkers, right? Like we're designing experiences for our consumers who are our kids. And, and hopefully if we're really good at what we do, we're empowering our kids to help design their futures, right? By giving them the tools and, and scaffolding the questions and supporting them through the iterative process. So I think so much of what we do or did, I guess, in, in PR or advertising or marketing or business really builds onto what we do in a classroom, which is, you know, who are, whose needs are we meeting? How are we meeting them? Um, and, and, how can we improve the way that we meet the needs of our kids? So you got off the subway, you're like, I'm going to become a teacher. And then you got your doctorate and your thesis or dissertation question was, what are the different types of questions people ask depending on what they're learning? Uh, can you tell us what, what did you find as an answer to that question? I thought that was a super amazing question. You are such a good researcher. Um, yeah. really good. I did a whole background check on you. We need to talk about that off air. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, let me know what you found. I don't think I'm that interesting. Um, but maybe. Um, so, so the question was really built out of the history of how people learn. And, you know, you're a teacher, so I'm sure you've heard of Piaget and the whole ages and stages idea. And so the question was, do people ask different types of questions based on how old they are? And so I worked with kids in elementary, middle, and high school. Uh, or does it change based on the, the topic that's presented to them? So I had a couple different content areas. And ultimately, what we found is that the types of questions that kids were asking were largely dependent on the content itself. And what I've come to believe uh, now and what I continue to, to look into and research is how is the presentation of content, how does that impact the way that kids and all of us really approach learning, right? So when you are trying to be a critical consumer of media, how does the presentation of that media or of that information impact your natural next question or the way that you go to seek out supporting details? I think that one of the reasons why I got into design thinking is, again, it really fits what we know to be what cognitive scientists would call an ill-defined problem. Right. These are like, um, you know, Chi and Glazer's work from, I think, the early 80s about and, and they call them, I'm doing air quotes, real world problems. Right. They don't have like clear solutions. So basically it's like life. Right. And, you know, life is not a multiple choice quiz. It's There's not like a single best answer. It's sort of like, well, this is the best thing to do for now. And I'm open to the possibility that that might change. And so, um, you know, 
looking at the way that kids ask questions as they, you know, are presented with different types of information and having that vary significantly, whereas the questions that they asked by age did not, it almost disproved this whole idea that, um, you know, kids are stuck in these stages um, and rather that there maybe is more of like a slow trajectory as we grow, right? Which is one of the big developmental debates too, whether it's, whether it's incremental or, or you know, stage-like. And so I think I'm leaning towards incremental, but again, it's same thing with nature and nurture. It's nature via nurture, right? It's, it's, it's incremental through the stages. And so again, it's really the affordance of the way that you're presenting information. So what I love about design thinking is you're not thinking just about science in a silo or history in a silo. You're thinking about the history of science and how does the history of science inform the way that scientists solve problems and what affordances of our current experience here can be used to innovate or improve on the solutions that maybe already exist but could be better. Well, and so then from from your dissertation and everything, like the different types of questions that we ask, I imagine then change pretty dramatically, like from lesson to lesson or unit to unit, depending on what kind of questions you want your students to be asking themselves. And so then you adjust how you present that information. I, that is fascinating. Um, and I actually think of your book now as like my question encyclopedia. It's full of guiding questions, organizers for questions, what kind of questions to use. Um, and I, I loved that you put it underneath the the frames of design thinking, uh, we've been using that in this district. And I, I know in the classroom, uh, it's kind of blowing up. But just like you said, it's, it just makes it so much more relevant uh, and really places things into context. I have one more sort of big sort of overarching question before we move into the content of your book is like, how do you define learning? What is learning? And um, how do we look for it in a classroom? I know that's a really big question. That is the best question ever, Becky. Oh, my God. Ben wrote it. (laughs) I stole it from him. Learning is just living, right? Like you're learning right now. Like every moment you are awake and, and perceiving the world around you through any of your senses, you're learning. I mean, what you choose to do with that information, you know, some folks would say learning is a change in behavior, right? Those would be like sort of the behaviorist or or, you know, a change in the way you think. So that's maybe cognitive, but really and truly you're always learning. And so I think a question is not just what is learning, but what is the learning that you need to be doing to support the work that you need to be doing, which is which is why I got so interested in design thinking in the first place, right? So like, what are the problems that you see in the world around you that you want to learn the answers to, and that you're going to take the content that you're currently working on or learning with your students to solve? Um, and so that's sort of why I, I came at, and when I do, you know, when I work with teachers, it's usually from, from two perspectives, right? So I say, you know, what are your kids learning or maybe what is mandated by the curriculum to be taught in this particular situation? And where is a place where your kids are just naturally confused or curious or just always engaged? Or on the flip side, you know, what is something that's happening in their life that is profound and impactful? Like pulling from what you care about and using that to sort of answer the, the content or the standards that you already are teaching. So how do we measure learning effectively? Um, well, spoiler alert, it's not the way we're doing it currently. I sort of feel like we are are solving the wrong problems and asking the wrong questions. One of the things, again, I keep coming back to design thinking because it's, so, it's such a compelling framework. Um, the idea of 
sussing out a symptom from a root cause. I mean, I was just talking to someone this morning. An example I always give is when you are sick, my kids have colds right now, right? And so a symptom is that they're blowing their nose. But, you know, you can't solve for the blowing of the nose. You have to solve for sort of the actual root cause of that sickness, right? And so I think we need to ask better questions. What do we care about? And what is important for 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 our kids to know so that they can be and feel successful in the future. And so the thing that I like about formative assessment and design thinking is that it's iterative. We talk a lot about growth mindset, but we don't model it in the way that we're assessing kids, right? You have like the single summative test and it determines what college you get into. You know, that to me doesn't measure learning, that measures where you are on this one single day, which is great for that one day. But it doesn't take into account the fact that people change over time or the fact that, you know, hey, in undergrad, I studied business communications advertising. And then I ultimately ended up at a graduate program for cognitive science, but a single test wouldn't tell you that. And so I think if we really want to measure learning, we have to do it formatively. It has to be iterative. Um, You know, I I think portfolios are wonderful things. Not that I think we should have some sort of, um, you know, mandated portfolio. Can we tie that back then to how formative assessment is fundamental to design-based classrooms. Because like I said, we've been using design for a long time. And I think there are ways to just, it's a tool, just like tests are, um, just like assessments are. I think there are ways to implement it poorly and ways to implement it amazingly well. Uh, And again, your book is such a testament to how well you can pull in formative assessment and feedback of all kinds for students to enhance their learning. So how do you encourage educators to assess like the messiness of creativity and standards both through design-based explorations? So in in the book, I have formative check-ins at every sort of element of where you might be in a design thinking type of experience, right? So so there are formative check-ins to assess, you know, how well the kids are acquiring the fundamental content that you're asking them to acquire, but also how they feel about how they're applying that content, right? So one of the steps in in, uh, design thinking, one of the, not steps, but one of the elements is um, empathy, and which I really take to mean taking perspective, right? So are you able to take perspective? And and in that space, the formative assessments that you use can tell you how a student understands multiple perspectives, whether it's from, you know, multiple characters in a text, right? I used to read when I taught second grade, we would do um, the Stinky Cheese Man, right? Which was the gingerbread man, the sort of spinoff of that. And so we would read two different versions of the same essential story. And we'd talk about the perspective of, of, the uh, the characters in the book. Um, and that's a formative assessment. Can you take different perspectives? Can you demonstrate that you understood what was compelling different characters to behave in certain ways? Um, and so I think that formative assessment really is um, the best way to measure learning. You are really checking in with kids through the process. Uh, another thing that I love about design thinking is it's very process oriented. It's not about this final summative product, but it's process. Um, and so, you know, where are you now? Where did you start? Where are you now? And then ultimately, where are you going to go? So one of the other things that I try to build into this book are, are formative feedback questions that tie into metacognition and self-regulated learning and epistemology. So you asked earlier about, um, Ben, you asked about uh, my dissertation research, which was about question asking based on content area and the age of the students in the classrooms. And epistemology is really the study of, of learning and, and knowledge and, and what our beliefs are about different types of knowledge and whether they're very naive or complex beliefs. And so formative assessment can evaluate where your kids are in the process of understanding content. 
right? Do they believe that there's a single right answer? Are they open to change? Do they know that there's a best answer now? And, and that's really, you know, the power of formative assessment. That's awesome. Totally. Um, so yeah, let's, let's dive into your book. And it starts with empathy. And I love in your book how you say your, your description of empathy is stepping back before you step in. Uh, how is empathy different from just understanding? And what are some tangible ways we can have teachers help students learn that skill of empathy? So understanding, from my perspective, is, is just simple content knowledge, right? Like understanding genre or a theme, that's understanding. But empathy is, is, really, is really tough, and it's a really sort of soft thing, and I, and I hesitate to point to like, oh, this is what empathy is, and here's how you teach it. What I like to say more is perspective taking. So can you learn about something or understand something in a way that now suddenly you can maybe take the perspective of somebody that you otherwise wouldn't have understood or been able to take the perspective of? Um, I think about in the book, I talk about Andrea Henkel, who, who was a teacher at Quest to Learn in the city. And she had this beautiful podcast project that she would do with her kids. And she was teaching them the skills of interviewing and they were creating a podcast. And she went in saying, you know, hey, interview folks in the community because they're in, in New York City, interview folks in the community who are impacted by Hurricane Sandy or September 11th. And, you know, through the experience, all of these other stories started to emerge. And, and ultimately, you know, this was around the time that, that, you know, we lost Eric Gardner and it became a rallying cry. And what happened was students were able to understand the perspectives of even others in their class and others in their community and others in, in parts of the city where they did not live um, and just gave them a better sense of the fact that, you know what, we're small and we're not the only ones here. And sometimes you have to, you know, listen um, to hear before you can actually change and grow. And, and to me, that's, you know, that for me was a really, really powerful experience when she shared that. And one of the quotes in your book talked about just the automation coming and that by the year 2026, uh, we're going to have millions of jobs that are gone, but that usually we use that number to incite fear, but instead the reality is far more promising. So why is the future more promising? And then how do we, how should we change how we teach in order to make sure kids are ready for that future? future is infinitely more promising when you look at all of the pushback against the standardization of human children. And you see that a lot of the standardized and sort of rote mechanical work is already being done and will continue to be done by machines, which is great. And that frees us up as humans to be much more creative and much more flexible and much more um, you know, efficacious in our in our daily work and in our learning. And so I think that we need to stop looking at technology as this, you know, big scary thing that's going to take jobs away from kids in the future and start looking at it as a way that's going to free up our time to to solve bigger problems and to feel a sense of purpose and drive and passion in our work. Um, I mean, my goodness, before we were able to just Amazon Prime something in two days, you had to run all over town to find that one type of, um, it's back to school, right? So we had all of these special kind of folders. Everybody needed a special folder and different colors. And we would have spent hours and hours and days going from store to store, but technology solved that for us. And so now there's a warehouse somewhere um, I mean, granted, I understand that there are human people working in that space. Um, and what it does is it allows us to then upskill 
people who are currently working to to do new jobs and and hopefully more purposeful and exciting type of work than the rote mechanical you know type of work of, of time gone by which again aligns to the fact that standardized tests and and you know multiple choice answers are are no way to measure learning when when the future looks so different than the past mm. and the so much in your book, and I love that you have all those examples um, of you know different places that are using it and things like that. And I want to pick your brain a little bit too on like your favorite examples of classroom design thinking because I, I geek out on this stuff too. And it's it's so amazing what our students can do when we give them the power to explore things that they have purpose and and have relevance and tie meaning to. Um, the second part of it though is like identify and research. And you have a quote both on your, it's like the first thing you see on your website. And then it also opens up that second chapter of the book uh, from Zora Neale Hurston. And it says, research is formalized curiosity. It is poking and prying with a purpose. How does that tie into like what we should be looking for and like kind of getting into the um, symptoms and effects like you were talking about before? Like, how do we know we're solving the right problem? So I love that you quoted, that you took that quote. That happens to be a quote that is hanging very very proudly on the wall in my office and it's framed because I love it so much. It's, I mean, it's true, right? Like the process of design thinking, it's not this novel process that never existed, right? It's a formalized process of not just why you're pursuing understanding, um, but how you can come to a better answer and how you can feel more purposeful in, in enacting whatever that learning is. So for instance, you're talking about identifying the problem, researching and identifying it, you know, the, the cold is the example you see your kids sneezing or coughing, but, but that's, that's a symptom. That's not the root cause. And oftentimes we, you, you asked earlier about what role does, do standardized tests take? Well, I feel like in design thinking, when, because everything is iterative, because formative assessment is just woven into the very fabric of design thinking, you are continuously testing. So, so when you identify a potential um, root cause, you know it's the root cause because when you address it, um, the problem goes away, right? You solve the problem. If you really get the root cause, then you have solved that problem. And if you haven't solved that problem, then you need to look hard and say, was this really a root cause or was it a symptom? You know, it, it could be a root cause that maybe you didn't have the resources you needed to solve, but it gives you uh, formative feedback to say, you know what, maybe this wasn't it. Let's go back to the drawing board. We had all these other ideas. You know, there's the two by two matrix of effort versus impact. And so maybe it lived in another, you know, quadrant of that of that matrix. And maybe there's some another, you know, potential root cause that I didn't originally address. But again, it's it's poking and prodding until you come up with with you know what works. Absolutely. So I, I think my initial hesitation to jump into design thinking was it made sense to me why it would it makes sense for Steve Jobs or in those industries where you have, you know, a product that you have to make. And one of the things that I loved about your book was just story after story of kids using design thinking for some incredible learning. Can you share with us what are what was your favorite example that you had in the book of the power of design thinking to students in a classroom setting? Well, I don't think I realized that it was design thinking until I sat down to write this book. In fact, when I was working with my amazing editor, Susan Hills, who was helping me think through how to even frame it, I told her a story about when I was teaching in the classroom. Um, 
I was, I was doing this unit. I was so proud of myself. I went to uh, the park, I went to Central Park and I grabbed a bunch of leaves that were changing colors and we were getting to those leaf rubbings, right. That, that a lot of folks do in the fall. And I brought it in. I was so excited. I was going to teach about photosynthesis and science and STEM and all this great stuff. And, and as we started talking and my kids, you know, they understood that without photosynthesis, the leaves, you know, went back to their, their, their natural color and that all the natural colors were different. And, and it opened up this conversation to, who we are when we're not in school. And it really opened my eyes to the power of seeing what my kids cared about and what my kids needed and what my kids, you know, where they were and where they actually wanted to go. And it was a big aha moment for me. And I think it changed the way that I taught in that moment because I really looked at my kids. You know, we all do those beautiful inventories at the beginning of the year. Who is your learner? Or for the parents or for the kids, you know, asking them to share what they love or bringing in their their things that represent them. But for some reason in that moment, and it turned into this bulletin board about, you know, the, the leaves, you know, our leaves or the leaves of us or something. And, you know, it wasn't just a bulletin board. It was really like a moment where, where we were being who we were and all of my kids were able to, to share something unique about themselves that ultimately tied back to everything we did for the rest of the year, right? I mean, everything we did, I was able to tie it back to one of the kids and saying like, oh, you know, Jonathan, do you remember when you told me that you really loved the Yankees? You know, are, are you watching them? Yes. Oh, you know, it's funny. We're doing fractions, you know, you know, and then we start talking about scores and fractions. So it all comes back together. It definitely relates to your hearts before heads in your book. Kind of, I love that idea that you got to get to their heart before you can get to their head. And, um, so you have this amazing, you know, we're releasing this episode right when your book comes out and there's an amazing kind of set of questions that you can ask to get to kids' hearts. So what are a couple of the categories you think are important to learn about your learners as a teacher? I mean, I think they're all really important to learn about. Um, and and the reason, um, I don't know, I, I even set it up in a way that I think that as a teacher, we need to know all of them. But from our learners, I love when we give our kids the opportunity to share about their hearts with, with others in the class, but not forcing them to do so. So for instance, you know, the H is their home and their home life, right? And, and who do they live with and who are your caregivers? And, you know, I need to know that so that I can best meet you where you are. Um, and I don't know that, that kids need to share that with everybody, but I, I need to know that as their teacher, as the person who's going to be with them for 180 whatever days this year. So, you know, the home is something that I think teachers need to understand the educational experiences um, that, that they've had and then, you know, what they like to do activities. So like, what do you do outside of the classroom? It's Saturday morning. Walk me through a weekend. And that's a fun one um, for kids to share with one another. You know, I've seen kids do like silly TikTok videos about, you know, what are they doing on the weekends? Right. So like pull in technology, make it fun. Right. Like it could, it should be fun. Um but then, you know, there are certain ones. So like there's the home, there's your educational experiences. So it helps me see what you care about. And one of the things I talk about in the book is, you know, kids have said to me, oh, I really love history. And, you know, you ask them why. And it always comes down to the teacher and the experience that they've had. It's not necessarily about the content as much as their experience with the content. And it seems to be a recurring theme, right? My dissertation research was on the types of questions and the ways that we approach understanding based on what content area we're learning. And I think that it really depends on how we present that information to our kids and how purpose-driven that information is. Um, 
What are the transformative life experiences they've had? What are their special attributes? What is something unique to our kids that they want us to see and know and hear so that we can honor them as individuals every single day? Yeah. So uh, let's, can we talk about killer snails? Are, are they real? Uh, tell us about that and what, what teachers have to learn from that opportunity. So killer snails are these real venomous marine snails. They live in all warm tropical water. Nuh-uh. And for real. For real. I mean, I thought it was just a name for like a cute name for a company. I had no idea. I thought it was no. fake news. <laughs> They're totally real. Cone snails. Look them up. Cone snails. Um, and they are deadly. And in fact, uh, there is one kind, uh, I believe it's the one that lives in Australia, that will, uh, they envenomate you. And you will a two hundred. It will kill a two hundred pound person in under five minutes. And in fact, it's really interesting how they discovered them. There was a fishing village uh, in the Philippines, and the fishermen would go out for the day to go fishing, and they would not. You know, some of them would not come back. And researchers and scientists were trying to figure out what was going on, like what was happening to these folks. And what they found is that in, in the nets of all of these fishermen, they all had these cone snails. And they learned that these snails have these um, sort of what they call them venom harpoons, and they would envenomate you. And it, it goes right to your you know, fight or flight reflex. And so you, you can't really do anything. And ultimately, um, well, it doesn't end well. But oh, my God. God, wow, like another I reason. Another- yeah, I'm the most anxious person you've ever met, <laughs> I and I will never swim again. Like- <laughs> it's not all bad. It's not all bad. I didn't get to the good part. So the good part is people, like scientists, like my colleague, well, my former colleague, she's at Hunter College, an incredible, incredible woman. Uh, Dr. Mandy Holford is doing research on these nails. Why, you ask? Because their venom is um, can work just like an opiate in terms of controlling pain, but unlike an opiate, it's not addictive. So they're using it to treat folks. Yeah, yeah, for real. So they're using it to treat folks who are undergoing, um, you know, all sorts of horrible, painful procedures, and in a way where they they get the relief from the pain without the fear of of the addiction. Wow. So why name a company after that? Well, because um, one of one of the three co-founders was Dr. Holford, and her research on the killer snails was so exciting. Um, we were in a uh, a workshop for grantees at Hunter College, and I was in the School of Education, and we were talking, and it was like this is something that would totally fascinate kids. It would get them so excited to learn about science. Like, why don't we pull from this? I mean, science is amazing, right? Same thing with design thinking. Like, you can learn. You, you have to learn from what you care about, right? Like pull from, from your passion. And so this is an interesting thing. This really hooks people, but I'm bummed, right? So let's use it as a way to, to, to sort of teach science and the power of science. That's awesome. So then can you tell our listeners a little bit about like what they might find on the Killer Snails website? So, so Killer Snails, we make educational games for kids that place them in the role of scientists and help them see themselves as a scientist by doing science. And so how, um, how we do this is we create these learning experiences that are games where, you know, kids have to solve solve a problem they you know uh, biodive is the one that we have out right now which is a hybrid virtual reality digital experience where the kids are trying to solve uh, problems of, of ocean acidification and the rising temperatures in the water um, and it really pulls them into you know why is it important for us to solve these problems now but in the process they're collecting data they're looking at abiotic and biotic variables they're comparing their data from the past to the data in the current, they're talking to one another as they, you know, are, are trying to make sense of how these variables impact uh, the ocean ecosystem. You're awesome. Thank you so much. 
And we will let you run on this. Where can our listeners go to learn more from and with you? So I have a Twitter handle, which is just at El Portnoy. Um, I do work at Northeastern and they have an incredible program. Uh, the, the experiential learning network is extraordinary there. I'm so thrilled to be, to be partnered with them now and doing more of the sort of experiential learning, design thinking, innovation work. Uh, so you can find me there. Uh, you can find my website, which is just lindsayportnoy.com. Um, yeah, reach out l.portnoy at northeastern.edu. Let's close up shop, Ben. What'd you learn? I learned a ton. I uh, just love the story of thinking of being on the subway and, and remembering that we do so much more than just spreadsheets. We change the entire trajectory of kids' lives. So um, I was just inspired by that to start off. Um, but I also loved her challenge um, that came with automation. I think a lot of times we look at the rising AI revolution and we see um, Amazon opened a grocery store with no cashiers and it can just tell what you put in your cart using AI and you just walk out and it charges you. And um, we see that we've had um, driverless trucks drive from Fort Collins all the way to Denver with a load full of Coors. And we get scared like, oh, wow, so our kids can't be cashiers anymore. They can't be uh, truck drivers anymore. And that scares us. And I like the idea that she put forward that this isn't something that we need to be scared of, but it's like really promising because we know that there's going to be 200 million new careers and that regardless of what career our kid goes into, teaching them to think like a designer is so crucial. And so I was challenged by that. How can I help kids learn to design think? Uh, Cause that'll prepare them for anything. How about you Beckles? That's a really good one, man. I, um, I kind of want to bring us back. The, the thing that kept echoing for me while we were talking is that I think sometimes we fall into this binary trap where we feel like design thinking might be contrary to some of the other things that we hold dear in education, like direct instruction, standards-based instruction. And we kind of get this idea in our head that I, I think because of our binary bias, which we all have as humans, that we consciously or subconsciously divide things into different camps when they don't really need to be. Um, so like standards-based instruction versus design thinking or per- personalized learning versus standardization. And one thing I love about this way of thinking is that you need a combination of both. You need the yin and yang of whatever issue it is that you're tackling. John Spencer, uh, another educator, has actually a really beautiful video that I show all the time. Thanks, John Spencer, uh, about the differences between convergent and divergent thinking. And he outlines those differences between them, but then ends the video with how important it is and how crucial it is to have both when you're working through an issue. And design thinking gives us both the permission and a procedure for being able to vacillate between those two seemingly opposite modes of thought to get us closer to ideal solutions. Another example that I've actually been dying to share for a couple of weeks, I was listening to a podcast the other day about my favorite band. They're called Fish. Do you know them, Ben? I didn't even know you liked Fish. No, I... I... Stop it. You do too. <laughs> if you guys don't know them, it's a totally hippie jam band. Um, I, people love them or don't, I, but they do an incredible amount of... Do you know how to know if your friend likes Fish? How? You already know. What do you mean? Like, it's it's kind of like CrossFit or vegan. Like, they just oh, tell you to- right Oh, because like they a, talk about like it all the time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, Good one. Yeah, thanks. All right. <laughs> I'll put in the crickets on the <laughs> 
So they do, Fish does, if you don't know them, they do an incredible amount of imp- improvisation. For example, last year they played 13 nights at Madison Square Garden without repeating any songs, um, consecutive nights without repeating any songs. And they're known for like sometimes playing 20 to 40 minute jams based off of their three to four minute studio versions. I just love them. I think they're geniuses. But anyways, Trey Anastasio, the lead singer, was talking about in this podcast I was listening to how fundamental practice is to their improvisation. And practice and improv are things that we would typically put, you know, kind of immediately because of that binary bias at like different ends of that spectrum. But there's no way these four guys could play so seamlessly together without hours and hours and years and years of diligent, careful, planned practice. So I guess what I want to get across is that design thinking or design challenge projects don't take the place of standards-based learning or direct instruction. They live together and they have to, to have the most positive impact for our students. Otherwise we're doing them a disservice. Totally. Well, we thank you so much for listening definitely check out Dr. Portnoy's book, Design to Learn. Amazing book. And we would love to hear from you. How do you teach like an advertiser? Uh, How do you use marketing strategies to really change behavior and beliefs in your classroom? And can you share this episode with a friend? That would be fantastic. Uh, As always, have a great generic time.